0: Good morning, Calvary. Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. If we have never met, my name is Thomas. And it's a joy to be on staff here at the church and be able to open up God's Word with us on the weekends. Here we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And we're, in the, we're nearing kind of the middle point where people who have been wrestling with who this Jesus is are confronted with some pretty terrifying stories. So if you remember where, we, where we've been is that Jesus Christ has come and it's been proclaimed as good news for everyone. Anyone who would receive Jesus would receive this good news that God has sent into the world. And Jesus has been inaugurating the kingdom. And he has opened up by teaching from the Old Testament prophets that all the things that God promised would happen by sending a rescuer, a Messiah promised one are now being fulfilled in their history right in front of their eyes for their eyes to see and their ears to hear all that Jesus would do and to come to realize who Jesus is and people are taken back and questioning and wondering could this really be the Messiah they're struck by his teachings that he teaches with one with Authority. They've watched his miracles and his interactions with the downcast and calling sinners back into the kingdom through repentance. And people are wondering who is this Jesus? Is he just a great teacher? Is he a prophet sent by God? Is he something more or something else altogether? And those whose eyes are beginning to see and whose ears are tuned to hear have one of two responses. Everyone who begins to see and hear who Jesus really is, not as we would imagine him to be or try to put him in a small box to the sideline, but seeing and hearing who he really is has one of two responses. They either beg him to stay or they beg him to leave. Those are, those are the only two options when somebody understands who Jesus truly is. Indifference to Jesus is ignorance to who he is. If you just think, ah, I like Jesus, I could take him, I could leave him, it means that you don't fully understand who he claimed to be and who he truly is. Because those who saw him and heard what he said had one of two responses. They're begging him to stay. Or they're begging him to leave. Now, where do I get that? Well, in part, we're getting it from our stories today. We're gonna open up the the Gospel of Luke again. We're gonna go to chapter 8. So if you got your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 8. And Jesus has, has given his inaugural address about the kingdom ethic that Jesus has come to bring good news to those who are impoverished, to set the captives free to bring liberty to the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's been living this ethic out. Then he describes it in more detail on the sermon on the plain to his disciples. And then he departs and he begins to live out all that he was teaching. We're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 8. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filled with water, or sorry, and they were filling with water and were in danger and they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm and he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him? This is an interaction with Jesus where the disciples are so awestruck with what Jesus just did that they begin to ask themselves afresh, Who is this Jesus That we're in the boat with. Now remember, they were on the shores of Galilee when Jesus first called them. They're fishermen. They're seasoned sailors. They they were the ones that first recognized that Jesus had miraculous abilities to bring in a harvest of fish. Where Peter's response was terrifying. And he said, Jesus, leave me. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus responded, no, no, no. Don't be afraid, Peter draw near, Peter, I'm going to commission you, Peter, to go be a fisher of people now to, to cast nets and draw people in to the kingdom of God. So, so Peter's already had this interaction where he's awestruck. And again, now he is marveling at this Jesus again, like, what just happened? because this Jesus put on display something that then has to go back and he has to think through all the interactions he had with Jesus before, like, wait a minute. What what, what about the time when we were eating or drinking or traveling? Was that same Jesus with us with these same abilities? It would be like watching a a show on Netflix. You're following the main character that's been revealed to be the hero of the story, but nobody knows yet. And then as the story gets unfolded, all the characters have their eyes open to who was with them the entire time. And you have to like go back and almost reinterpret everything that you experience in light of this new understanding. And here's Peter and the disciples. And what they understand is that by the word of Jesus, they've watched the words of Jesus heal crippled people. They've, he's watched the words of Jesus bring people back from the dead. They've watched the words of Jesus restore sight to blind people. But here, hear the words of Jesus, stop the wind. And did you catch it? Stop the waves. It's not like the wind stops and then it settles down over time. It says the wind stops and the waves stop. It's completely calm. Now who has the authority? That's the question again. Who has the authority by which nature must obey? It's God. Only God gets to do that. And so they're asking this question, who then is this Jesus? Like He doesn't just go in the category of good teacher. He can't just sit in the category of prophet. Who is this Jesus who has the authority over nature itself? Now Luke doesn't just give us an answer. That's not what Luke's doing. Remember, Luke is a historical biographer. He's he's talked to all the eyewitnesses of the day and asked them what happened, what did Jesus say, what did did Jesus do, where did Jesus go. And he's just cataloging all of these stories so that we can have the certainty that the things that we've been taught are true. And so Luke isn't writing like a modern day theological textbook in which then he says, and this is who Jesus is. No, what, what Luke does is he just goes to the next story. And he allows the next story, which is more terrifying than this one. He goes to the next story to answer that question. Who is this Jesus? And then the next story. Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasians, which is opposite Galilee. I mentioned this before. I highlight these from time to time. Luke always drops in historical details so that you know his story is not legend. It's not in a galaxy far, far away, as we said, in a time long, long ago. No, he names the places and the people that this is happening with. Why? It's so that you can go and say, is there really the possibility of a storm there? Is there really the possibility of a story like this happening? And so what you see is they're on the Sea of Galilee. And they've left Capernaum, that's where the last story took place. And they're going over here to to the Gerasians, which is on the east side of the lake. Now the west side of the lake, where Jesus has just been doing all of this teaching... That backs up to kind of the Mediterranean, the cool winds of the Mediterranean. And on this side of the lake, backs up to the desert, the hot winds of the desert. And when those come on the lake and collide, do you know what happens? Storms, unpredictable storms show up, where you could actually depart one, one side of the lake and it looked like a clear day. And by the time you get to the middle of the lake, you're caught up in a terrible storm. So here's another 10,000 bonus points for Luke the historian to help us understand where this story takes place rooted in geographical certainty. So here they've left that shore. And they've come over to the opposite side of the Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So here's a naked man. Out of his mind, living amongst the dead, isolated and alone. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus just steps foot on the the shore, is walking up. And here is this man who rushes Jesus, falls on his face, and gives the identity of who Jesus is. You see what Luke just did there? Luke answered the question the disciples were asking by just moving on in the work of Jesus. That The demons, this demon-filled man, rushes to Jesus, falls on his face, announces, You're Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And then he begs him. Do not torment me. He knows who Jesus is. See, those of us in the story trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? the demons understand who Jesus is? It goes on, verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So the townsmen who are terrified of this person, don't even know what to do with him, would occasionally strap him up because he's a threat to himself and to others. It's like putting him into the cuckoo's nest. And then he would break these bonds and the demons would actually rush him back out to the wilderness, this place where he has been residing. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. That's terrifying. And half the people in the room are going, and that's why I'm not a Christian. Like None of this makes sense. You tell these ridiculous stories that we know aren't true. Like, th- that's a primitive understanding of mental health. That's what, me- that's what some people in the room are saying. That's a primitive understanding of what we now know is mental health issues. And so we look at this story and say, this is why I would never be a Christian. This is why I-, I can't be a Christian. Or maybe you are a Christian. and say, yeah, that's just the part I just don't believe. Now, there are other people in this room, on the other side of the spectrum, that maybe you're not a Christian, but you're a very spiritual person. I mean, we live near Boulder, after all. I grew up in Boulder, so I can make jokes. And in Boulder, there are, very many, there are many spiritual people that, as I have conversations with them, and they meet with me as a local person or local pastor in the community, they'd say, wow, I really, I really like your energy. I like your energy. I like your aura. I like the spirit of you. And somehow they're in tune with what they would see as the, the spiritual world. And I don't think we should mock them. Because the Christian doesn't side with those who say the world is only material, saying that if if you can't sense it with your five senses, then it doesn't really exist. That's not what Christianity says. Nor does the Christianity say, well, it's all just a spiritual world. It's ambiguous. It can't be known. It can't be anything felt or or seen or, or discovered about it. There's just energy. No, the Christian knows that God has made us both material and spiritual. Like Jesus is, is in the flesh. He's not a, he's not, we didn't have a spiritual visitation from Jesus. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, is in the flesh. And he's casting out demons. Well, this is a, is a fuller, real picture of the world that we live in. And many Christians that don't have a, a category in their mind of, of spiritual activity and the source of spiritual evil are getting wrecked. Monday through Friday, and wondering what's going on. And all you can do is just chalk it up to, well, it's just been a hard week. It's been a tough month. Family issues are challenging right now. And they don't even know, they don't even know, they're not even aware, that there is a spiritual enemy who's characterized, the words of Jesus, to kill, steal, and destroy everything about your life. And so here Jesus, what we see is Jesus confronts spiritual evil head on. Jesus is here not only to confront evil, but to destroy it. That's why these beings say, don't throw us into the abyss. Don't don't destroy us. That's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus had said in Matthew that there's a day of judgment in which he's going to separate sheep and goat and those on his left enter this abyss. This lake of fire, which is reserved for the devil and all of his angels. And so these demons are, are recognizing who Jesus is, and they know why Jesus is there, and they're challenging him. You, haven't, you can't show up before the appointed time, can you, Jesus? Like, now's not the time to do the destruction work, so don't destroy us, but don't leave us without a host. And so send us over to the pigs. Now, is this the first time that Jesus has had interaction with the spiritual world in the gospel of luke if you've been reading along a chapter a week you've recognized that this is not the first time and it's not the last time either so let's let's see if we can put a frame around this a little bit back in luke chapter 4 jesus had his inaugural address and that came right after an episode in which jesus was led out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself the pinnacle ...of spiritual evil. This person, this devil, who's not omniscient, who's not all-powerful, who's not omnipresent. Okay, the devil can't be everywhere at all times. It is a singular entity. But this singular entity took Jesus to the wilderness to try to work him over. And what was the devil's strategy? Was the Scriptures. Was distorting and deceiving Jesus with the Scriptures. Trying to lie to Jesus... So you think okay, that's that's probably the number one way in which the devil or the demonic attack believers is through is through disordered truth, is through distorting what God said is true. That's the very first tactic. And so if if we are to overcome that strategy, we have to know what is what is written, what is true, like Jesus said. So then Jesus is tempted. He overcomes the temptation perfectly. He succeeds where all the places where Israel had failed. He's the true Messiah. He goes and he inaugurates the kingdom. And then he begins to do kingdom work, setting captives free. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 33. This is Jesus. They're in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had been thrown down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. The man, no harm. Preserves his life. Just a few verses later, chapter 4, verse 40. It says, Now when the sun was settling, setting, all those who had... Any who were sick and various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. You see, those who were there at the beginning, who perhaps dwelt in the heavens, know exactly who Jesus is. They have no confusion about the matter. He is the Holy One, the Son of God, by whom the wind and the waves have to obey. And so we get to chapter 8, and and chapter 8 opens up with many women who are following Jesus, and then it highlights this one woman who's Mary, who had been freed from many demonic spirits. This is chapter 8, verse 2. Also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So this is not his first activity with them. He's truly setting captives free. Chapter 9, we're going to get into next week, but not this area. But chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 72 with the authority by the name of Jesus... This is chapter 9, verse 1. To send out, to to expel demons by the name of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I said 72. I apologize. 12. To send them out with the authority of Jesus to cast out all of this spiritual evil. Chapter 10, they return and they can't believe it's happening. Like, just by saying the name of Jesus, all of these spiritual evils have to obey them. Chapter 10, verse 17, the 72 returns with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? We say his name, and by his name, spiritual evil has to depart Luke chapter 11, even the rabbis, those who are against Jesus, this is why you know the Gospels are true. They account for all of the things that Jesus' adversaries also said about him. And they're befuddled trying to figure out what's going on. And they recognize what Jesus is able to do. They've seen people who are spiritually stricken. And then the name of Jesus comes on them. And they're restored. And they're trying to figure out how is he doing that? So there's these rabbis who haven't believed in Jesus but are, are wrestling with the work of Jesus. They're not arguing that it's not happening. They're saying it's happening and we don't know how it's happening. And so they start saying, "Well, he must be he must be by the power of Beelzebub, a famous demon, by the power of Beelzebub. He must be using that demonic power to get rid of demons." And Jesus is like, "Hold on, time out. Are you crazy?" This is where that famous passage, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Like, how, how does evil cast out evil? If it does that, then the whole thing is just going to fall apart. And this is what Jesus says. No, it's not by the power of Beelzebub. This is Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says, no, it's not by that power, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, what you're watching, what you're observing here in your communities is the finger of God touching people's life. And it's a demonstration of the kingdom that I've been talking about. And and words are empty without action. And so what you're seeing is the action of what it looks like when the kingdom of God, the, the good news for all people, good news for the poor, liberty for the captives, uh, freedom for the oppressed, favor of the Lord preached, when that comes on somebody's life who's been oppressed by evil, you're watching the kingdom of God come in and restore people. That's what you're observing. Those are Jesus' words. Now, this is, this is kind of crazy, isn't it? This is what makes Christians kind of bizarre. But does that make it untrue? Let me ask you, there's a lot of evil in this world, isn't there? Could you account for all of the evil? I mean, real evil. Could you account for all of it? Just because this is a result of the terrible things we do to each other? The terrible things we do to ourselves? Can it really all be accounted for in flesh and bones and the stupid things we do? You now see, Jesus is, is, is affirming what we've seen in the Old Testament from the beginning. There is spirit and there is flesh. And we are human. We are, we are made in the image of God called the Imago Dei. And those who hate God hate his image, bearers. He hates them. And so his activity is always, is always to destroy the image of God in people. Let's just ruin it. Let's just ruin who they are as men and as women and how they relate to one another and how they relate to their God. That's mission critical number one. Destroy the Imago Dei. And so here's this man, out of his mind, naked and alone. We would say the image of God in him as a human being has been destroyed, has it not? It's just been destroyed. The question is, can Jesus restore it? And so Jesus comes in and and they're obedient to him. He doesn't have to call them. No, Jesus, the son of the most high God, steps on shore and evil, rushes to his feet and bows in front of him. And begs him to depart or allow them to depart into the swine. Now, here's here's the thing to clarify. Does, Does Jesus kill a bunch of pigs? No. But Jesus does permit evil to depart the man. So Jesus addresses the man. Now, you've got to think of this. So no one can see the anguish this man is under. It just looks like mental anguish. He's out of his mind. And Jesus is speaking through him to these demons. And they say, we are legion, which is a multiplicity of demons, perhaps up to thousands. And, and they beg him, do not, let us, do, not, do not cast us to the abyss into that eternal judgment. Let us go to the swine. And Jesus permits that. He does permit that. He has the authority to allow that to happen. And so he permits them to go in the swine. And what do you, what do we see in this herd of pigs? Is chaos. And then what that chaos ensues, they rush to the edge of the cliff and they swine dive off. they swine dive off to their death. What what, what did we just visibly see? We visibly saw the internal torment of this man, of chaos and then destruction. That's what they do. That is their desire, to create chaos and destruction in your life. Is there any hope for us? Or is it hopeless? Oh, there's great hope. Oh, man, there's so much hope. And at first have to just realize that there's a category for this. Now, I get it. The people in this room are like super skeptical. Like, man, I'm just not on board. And I've, I've lived a majority of my life in the same boat with you. Until I witnessed it. And have witnessed it. Multiple times since. Began, obviously, traveling on missions, I see my buddy Mike in the back. Mike and I were heading down the, the, uh, the river in Brazil. And we were down there, and there was a man just out of his mind. And we were on a medical mission team, and so he comes on the boat to, to visit with the doctors. And, and the doctors are like, I don't know. I mean, We could give some medication, but, you know, there's just not anything we really could do. And, and one of the local pastors said, no, we've, we've seen this before. We know what to do. And then prayers offered in faith, by the name of Jesus Christ, restored this man. It was was just crazy. Just restored him to his right mind and returned him to his family and village. I've watched it there, witnessed it in Haiti, and then wondered, is it not happening in America? Until I've watched it in the States. It's not the the normal practice. There are many cases of mental anguish and health that are chemical imbalances. Absolutely, 100% sure. I I totally affirm that. There are just some that our modern counselors are befuddled with that only prayers of faith offered in the name of Jesus bring healing. That's it. But that's what Jesus wants you to know is there's nothing to fear, is that knowing Jesus removes all fear. Do you see the fear in this story? The fear of the disciples in the boat, the fear of this man rushing to Jesus, the fear of the townsmen we'll see in a second. But no, Jesus doesn't bring more fear. He brings peace and assurance. Do you see what Jesus did to this man? He cast out the demons. Check this out. He cast out the demons And then he restores this man. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. And they're afraid. Because they're wondering, who is this Jesus? They're terrified to see this man that they couldn't restrain with chains in his right mind, clothed in the community of Jesus. That's what the kingdom of God does for someone when it comes into their life. That's what the kingdom of God does to fully restore someone. So you go from this man being out of his mind, naked and alone, to being in his right mind, clothed in community. What did he just experience? Oh, he experienced the beauty, the graciousness, and the power of Jesus Christ. That's a picture of the kingdom to work in someone's life. Verse 36, And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasians asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They begged him to leave. Like, leave us. Why are they begging Jesus to leave? Because Jesus isn't someone who just has power. Jesus is power. He's not just some miracle worker that has access to power. Jesus is the source of all power. And power in their presence is something to fear. Unless they come and draw near to him, as Peter did. As a humble person saying, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for the things that I have done. Would you restore me? And then the power of his grace rushes on you. And you are forgiven and brought into right relationship with him. But they're begging him to leave. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now I think that final piece there is just somewhat unbelievable. The man has been healed. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's like, let me come with you. I want more of you. I want to experience more of what I just experienced. And Jesus says, no, 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 you can't come with me. You're going to be the first missionary of the Gentiles. This is good, like, biblical trivia, right? Like, first mention of the Gentiles. Paul, no. Crazy demon-possessed man <laughs> on the shores of the Gerasians. No, you're going you're gonna to go back in. Where does he have to go? To a bunch of people who are really friendly to him? No, nah, not so much. People who are really excited that Jesus showed up in their town? Eh, not really. Where does he have to go? He has to go back home. People to the, maybe to the people who are most hostile. And does he have to convince them? Does he have to wear them down? Are they now his enemy? Not at all. Not at all. What is he charged to do? Just go tell everybody the incredible work of God in your life. You don't even have to convince them that I'm really the Messiah. Just go tell the community that you had lived in what God has done in your life. And let them see. Let them see what it looks like. When the kingdom of God gets a hold of somebody. And maybe there'll be a few there that say, I'm in. I want that in my life. And so he's he's sent back out as a missionary. Now Jesus is on the way to destroy evil. How does Jesus really do it? How does he ultimately do it? He does it through his death. It's like Jesus wins by losing. It looks like he lost. It looks like the the strong in the world really beat him up and destroyed him. And yet Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has disarmed and destroyed all the evil so that no one in this room should be terrified. We should never be afraid again. Ever. Because we live under The authority of Jesus the Christ. Here's Hebrews chapter 2 that tells us what Christ did. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. Like you live in a real material world. Yep. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you've ever been afraid of death, Jesus is the solution. To destroy the one who holds that fear over you. The devil. So by taking on flesh, the material world, he destroys the devil's work, a spiritual evil. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When he nailed our sin to the cross, what did he do? Well, Colossians tells us, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them In him. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He triumphed over every single rule and authority of spiritual evil. And he doesn't leave us without spiritual resources. This is why Paul writes to us, this is Ephesians chapter 6, and tells us where does our strength come from to face these battles? Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Do you have the ability to go toe-to-toe with the spiritual evils of this world? No! Do not do that on your own strength. But be strong in his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, in the strength of his might, do you have the strength and the ability to defeat evil? 100%. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So does Jesus, is his enemy this man on the shore? No. Jesus is going to address the spiritual evil behind him. Now, does Jesus think that there's a devil behind every bush? Nope. Do you need to believe there's a devil behind every bush? No. Would it be really helpful to recognize that there's a spiritual war going on? That you have no reason to be afraid of it. And that by the authority of Jesus Christ, you will find victory. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, once we understand these things, a bit more of the struggles and chaos and destruction of our world come into view. And the Christian is the one that has a true worldview of what is material and what is spiritual and what is the solution for both, being found in the authority of Jesus the Christ. Who is this Jesus? It's God himself. It is God himself who took on flesh, who died our death to give us new life. And that's an incredible thing. It's worthy of worship. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up here and, and, and I just want to respond in song. Where we would just say, thanks be to God. We would worship Jesus as the one who brings light into darkness. Who brings the kingdom into disaster. And restores all things new by the authority of his word. So let's pray and let's sing. Father God, I thank you so much that you yourself would come. You would send your son to defeat death to disarm all spiritual evil, to truly set captives free, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I just pray in this room right now by the name of Jesus Christ that you would bind up the deceitful voices in people's lives that are lying to them They want to destroy the imago day in them. I pray that you would silence them and that they would hear you. They would have the Father's voice in their head. Father, I pray that you truly set us free. By all power and authority of Jesus the Christ, we pray this. It's in his name. Amen.